Welcome back, HVAC On Air listeners. We are here for another episode of What's New with Regs, and we're here with Jennifer Butch, as always. Thanks for coming back, Jennifer. Thank you, Lindsay. And we have a returning guest. We have Dr. Rajan Rajendran here again as well. So thank you for being on the show, Rajan. Thank you, Lindsay, and good morning to everyone. So today we have a new episode that we're going to be talking about system efficiency and looking at where we're going in the future. So Jennifer, I'll let you kick us off. All right. So in our last episode, we did focus on energy efficiency, but we looked at it more from the federal minimum energy efficiency level set by the Department of Energy here in the United States and the metrics used to rate air conditioning systems today. So whether those are part load metrics like SEER, the seasonal energy efficiency ratio, the integrated energy efficiency ratio on the commercial side or full load EER that we use here. But however, you know, lately I've been involved in several conversations and heard different topics and webinars around system efficiency. And so Rajan, I was hoping you could join us today and explain what's the difference when we talk about today's rated equipment efficiencies versus a system efficiency. Mm-hmm. Thank you, Jennifer. Thanks for the question. And I'll be happy to do that. When we start talking about components, you know, like a compressor, for example, We always talk about a compressor efficiency, and that's often talked about in terms of an isentropic efficiency, which measures the power, or volumetric efficiency, which gives you an idea of how much refrigerant actually flows through the compressor. You can then take that to a higher level and start talking about COP and ER and SEER and IER and things like those that you just talked about and mentioned. But the problem with all of these things is that they do not necessarily cover the full operating conditions or the actual application of this equipment and how it performs in that application. One other point that has come to the attention of a lot of end customers and regulators, especially as focus has increased on energy efficiency and over the course of the last 30 to 40 years, as equipment has become more and more energy efficient, it is increasingly obvious that we're getting to a point where it is harder and harder to squeeze energy efficiency out of either a single piece of component or a single piece of equipment, which is why people started looking at how equipment and systems of equipment actually perform when they're all put together in a building or in a home, for example. And that is where we are right now. The building level, and I use the word building in a very generic sense to include a home as well, if you will. So a building level performance appears to be increasingly adopted. And this has started at the city level and state level, not just in the United States, is actually starting overseas first, you know, countries like Singapore, Hong Kong and Canada and, and so on and so forth. So that, that, that is what is happening. The, the attention that, that was drawn to energy efficiency and the diminishing returns by focusing only on equipment energy efficiency and part load and single point energy efficiency when it comes to actual energy and power consumption in the building. That makes a lot of sense. And so I think as if I'm a utility or a policymaker, really I'm thinking more larger scale than just a component level. So I'm really thinking about the source energy or 
how much energy needs to be provided to that building and what are ways to maybe reduce that in the future as we think about energy efficiency more broadly. So I've seen several cities lately, especially those that belong to the U.S. Climate Alliance, start to push forward their roadmaps or climate policies, future climate policies. And they often mention building decarbonization as a crucial step to achieve the deeper decarbonization goals, you know, many of which are net zero or 80% reduction of emissions in 2050, but several of them also have shorter, more near-term goals, some in 2025, 2026 timeframe, some in 2030. So can you explain what the term decarbonization means and maybe a few of the metrics or terms that are associated with that? Mm-hmm. I'll be happy to do that. Actually, it is this desire to go towards a state of decarbonization or net zero, you know, some of those terms that you used. It is that desire that has actually caused people to start looking at this whole building level performance. So it is appropriate that you ask me, what is it that motivates people to look at whole building performance? And what motivates them is this desire to to decarbonize. So what does decarbonization really mean? It really means reducing the carbon footprint of whatever human activity that we are engaged in. So it's a generic word that can be used for anything. And in our particular case, as it relates to building decarbonization, it really means reducing the building's carbon footprint. And pertaining to our industry, that includes, that means it's air and water heating, air conditioning, and similar activities in the building that our industry might actually be involved in. The main ways to reduce the carbon footprint is obviously the first and most important thing is to try and reduce the load. If your load is zero, then the power or energy that you need to take care of the load is also zero. So you're automatically at net zero. But you know that's not going to be the case. So load reduction is always an important factor when it comes to carbon footprint reduction in in our industry. The second thing is the use of lower global warming refrigerants to minimize their leaks and to prevent their loss from systems and so on and so forth. And of course, the third thing that we can focus on to reduce our carbon footprint is to use higher energy efficiency systems. And I will emphasize the word systems because it could really be systems of systems and not just a single component. And of course, you brought this up, Jennifer, what is extremely important after you do all of this is also to look at the source of energy. The energy source is one reason why you often hear about to decarbonize, all I gotta do is go to an all electric solution. Well, that's not really true because the source of the energy is extremely important. For example, If the energy and the electricity comes from an extremely high carbon source and you add transmission losses to it, going to all electric may actually make it worse for you. And this is why I think people have to start looking at this whole decarbonization or reduction of carbon footprint in a holistic manner and take into account every single aspect, including where your energy is coming from. Because very often, especially during peak hours, that energy could come from an extremely, quote-unquote, dirty source. That's a really good point, Rajan. You know, many of these climate action plans do 
look at the various aspects needed to reach their decarbonization goals. And so source generation, like where does the electric come from, has to be a key consideration and moving to more renewable sources is usually somewhere in that plan. And depending on where we're at in the country, California might already be more closely there, heavily relying on renewables like solar and wind. And then other areas of the country maybe are just beginning to start that evolution. That's a really good point. Now, these climate action plans also rely heavily on assumptions. Really, to have any action plan, you have to define a baseline, and then you have to define what your goals are in the future, and then you have some action items associated with how you think you can move from your baseline to your desired future state. And it's not really practical to just install equipment in a building and then measure it after the fact and assume that you're going to get there. Like you have to use some sort of modeling or predictive measure in order to basically ensure or have a better idea that you're going to achieve success along the way. I'm just curious what efforts we are undergoing today that will enable us from a modeling perspective to have more confidence that some of these policies that are being in place are achievable in the timeline required. Mm -hmm. I'll be happy to do that, Jennifer. Let's ask this question as to why we even need to do this building model. Let's back up a little bit. When we were talking about compressor efficiency, I know how to measure that. We can measure that all day long. When we start talking about taking an HVAC piece of equipment and rating it at one condition or two conditions or three conditions, we know how to do that in a lab. But then when you start talking about taking this HVAC equipment, for example, or a refrigeration equipment and putting it into an actual end use along with everything else like piping, like lighting, like all the door opening and closing and occupancy and things like that, and then you say, I'm going to put it in California one day, or maybe this is a building not in California, but it's in the middle of Ohio. The ambient conditions and the humidity and solar loading and so on and so forth, all of those things begin to matter. How are we going to measure? How are we going to predict what the performance, the applied performance of a building is actually going to be like? And then how are we going to measure it? And how would we know, as you said, how would we know whether we are actually doing what we said we are supposed to do? This is where the need for building models comes in. There are lots and lots of models that are being developed and that have been developed, and some of you may actually know models like Energy Plus, which has been around for a long, long time. It's one of the best models for building performance. But one of the issues has always been that a model is only as good as the data that you put in. Of course, you've got to have a good model. But if the data going into the model is not very good, then what comes out of the model isn't going to be very good either. And this is where organizations like AHRI and ASHRAE and CSA and so many others come in. For example, within AHRI, more than five years ago, some of the key people in our industry and uh, I would mention, for example, Mr. Dick Lord and Mr. Drake Irby as two names. There were many others, but these are the two that stand out in my mind. They started what is called a system steering committee, and it was established for this very same purpose, to figure out how we as industry members could provide the right and proper data across the entire operating envelope 
over the 8,760 hours that we have in a year. And uh, similar activities happened in ASHRAE, and one of the outcomes of the ASHRAE activity is what is called the ASHRAE 205 standard that we think and expect and hope will actually become final and get published next year. This standard, again, talks about how we as equipment manufacturers are supposed to provide the data and standardizes all of that so that building model creators can now have a standard set of data that they can get from the industry so that it doesn't matter whether they get it from manufacturer A or manufacturer B or manufacturer C, as long as the equipment is a chiller and it contains all these A, B, C, D parts, then it will conform to certain norms of how the data will be presented and what the different variables will be called and so on and so forth. The whole idea behind all of this activity is to try and bring about uniformity and make this whole modeling activity better and more useful for the customers. Along the same lines, even as we're doing the system steering committee and things like that, you know, we talked a little bit about reducing the carbon footprint. We talked about how the building level performance is important, but these are just a handful of things. There are many, many other things that we as an industry should be working on, and it is for that reason that the AHRI board actually established a task force to look into how AHRI as an organization and the member companies can actually proactively and not only proactively, but also provide leadership in working on all these topics that we just discussed today. And I'm sure as next year or two comes along, you're going to hear a lot more about all of this from many of us as member companies and from our industry organizations as well. Perfect. So we've talked about some of the work that's going on today and the need for this to meet some future goals. But Rajan, do you think that this will impact the DOE energy efficiency programs and metrics that we use today over time? Or do you think that those component level metrics still serve a purpose and they'll stay around more long term? But in addition to that, the utilities and the cities are going to start to incentivize and then possibly regulate at some point deeper decarbonization, like building level metrics or building level modeling that's required for new construction, especially? Interesting question. You're now asking me to predict the future. So let me ask you this. <laughs> Get your crystal ball out, Rajan. <laughs> yeah. So let me ask you this. The DOE standards that call for a certain level of efficiency of the equipment are a very useful metric to compare my piece of equipment against yours. So if my piece of equipment is more efficient than yours, and we both meet the minimum efficiency that they specify, then if Lindsay's our customer and she buys my piece of equipment, you would expect that she would be spending less energy and less power and therefore less dollars to operate it. But what if the reverse were true? What if Lindsay took her house and modeled it, and the model actually said that, yes, Rajan's piece of equipment, A, is actually more energy efficient on this rating condition. However, Jennifer's piece of equipment operates much better at those conditions at which 
Lindsay actually operates the equipment. So now, all of a sudden, we both meet the minimum, but I'm more efficient than you at the DOE condition. However, in the real-world application, your equipment performs better. So what should Lindsay do? I know what I would do. I would put your equipment because that means it's less power and less dollars. So I think that is the kind of scenario that is likely to happen. And when that happens, I would expect that some of these DOE metrics uh, will have to be looked at. And yes, there is definitely value in minimum energy efficiency. But beyond that, do those energy efficiency metrics, do they help me make the decision? That question, I think, will have to be answered in the future. Perfect. Thank you for sharing a little bit of Rajan's crystal ball with us. And I like the fact that Jennifer's equipment ultimately won. I mean, how does it get any better than that? <laughs> that's that's what Jennifer liked out of the whole scenario. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Oh, So I think this has been a really good conversation, and I think it applies broadly. I mean, right now, I think we're having these conversations at the state level. We're having these conversations at a utility level. But I do think, Rajan, in your prediction, you know, for the future of how does this maybe migrate more to the local level, that once homeowners through contractors are able to see the data or if it's presented to them that, like, this is the better system for your intended use, and here's why. I mean, I, I think that it does make its way eventually down to that buying decision. And I think contractors are the ones, obviously, uh, from a residential and commercial standpoint, that are going to be communicating this to the broader group. So eventually, system efficiency is going to play a key role, even at this lowest level. So thank you for joining us today and helping to explain how this comes about, like where we're at today and how it might persist into the future. I'm happy to join you anytime, Jennifer and Lindsay, and thank you for having me. Yes, thank you both so much. You know, we always appreciate you being on the show and sharing some of your expertise with us. I think this conversation was a great way to end the year for What's New with Regs, and we're looking forward to talking with both of you as we learn more in the upcoming years. As always, listeners, please follow us at Copeland Scroll on Facebook, Twitter, and our new LinkedIn page. And you can find us on ac-heatingconnect.com. And feel free to leave a comment. Let us know if there's anything specific you want to break down even further. Jennifer and Rajan are the experts here, and they're more than happy to answer any other questions or do an episode on something you feel like we just need to dig into a little deeper. So... With that, we'll talk to you next time. 